One of the things we need to wrestle with is the nature of saving faith. I think this is really important for us, and we're going to kind of think about this a little bit today. What, what is saving faith? What's the difference between genuine saving faith and, and say, the, the type of faith of those in Matthew 7.21? Remember Matthew 7.21, those people who said, Lord, Lord, and they did what they did in Jesus' name. But Jesus says to them in verse 23, and you could, you could turn there if you're, if you're not. We're going to kind of flip around a little bit this morning, but look at Matthew 7.23. Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's crucial for us to know the difference between true faith and a mere profession of faith of these workers of lawlessness. Jesus, they called Jesus Lord, but he never knew them. One thing we need to keep in mind then is that we are not saved merely by calling Jesus Lord. But we need to be equally clear that we are saved by grace through faith. No amount of works comes into salvation. To be saved by grace rules out works. And so Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which most of you would know even by heart, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace and works are opposite to one another. And so Scripture is clear. We are saved by faith, and we are saved by faith alone. I want you to flip over to uh, Romans chapter 5, and I just want to look quickly at Romans 5 and verse 1. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice there that Paul says, we have been. That's past tense. We have been justified by faith. And to be justified means to be declared righteous. And so even though we are sinners, we are counted as righteous and declared to be righteous on the basis of faith. When we believe on Christ, when we trust in Him to save us, God looks at us and treats us as though we possessed the righteousness of Jesus Christ, as though we possessed His own righteousness. We have been justified by faith. And because of that justification by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were once at enmity with God because of our sin. Now we have peace with God. We were hostile. Now we are reconciled. And all of this is through Christ. It's through Christ because He is the one who died to pay the penalty for our sins. And it's through Christ because He is the one who lived a perfectly righteous life as our representative. It's through Christ because He is the one that we must trust by faith. We must believe in Him. And so from Genesis to Revelation, salvation is by grace through faith. And just to kind of even see it in the, in the very beginning of the scripture, go to Genesis 15 and verse 6. 
Genesis 15, 6, and he, and that is Abraham, Abraham believed the Lord, and he, that is Yahweh, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. So he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We can see there that Abraham was saved by faith. He was justified by faith. Now I'm beginning this way this morning because we need to reckon with the nature of true faith. We have a very wishy-washy view of faith in our culture. We, we believe things by faith with no basis. People talk about faith as, as even as a belief in something that's unreasonable. Like, you know, I, I know it's not rational, but I believe it anyways. I have faith. You've probably heard of people kind of using faith that way. Or sometimes people try to work up faith for something that really what, what they're doing is they're hoping for something. And so they try to kind of build up faith. I, I, I believe it will be good weather for the wedding. And really what we mean there is it's just a, a really strong hope and almost a, a superstitious kind of thing at times. So what does true faith look like? Well, it's not a hope without a foundation. It's not a feeling to work up within ourselves. It's not a belief with no basis in reality. Faith is simply believing God's word. God told Abraham something, and Abraham believed God. Now we are told, we are told about the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told about what he did to save sinners, and we are told about who he is. And we're to believe him. We're to believe what God revealed about him. But here's where it gets really important, and, and, and what we need to really get today is we're not merely to believe certain facts about Jesus. Believing that he is God the Son incarnate is good, but that's not good enough. Believing that he took on humanity, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, was exalted to the right hand of God, all of that is good and all of that is true, but it won't save you. Demons believe all that. Are they saved? Knowledge of Christ isn't enough. That's not what true faith is. Believing it all to be true isn't enough either. I, I can say, yes, it's all true. All of the truth about Christ is true and I believe it, but, I, but not be saved. I can believe Jesus is Lord and do all kinds of things in his name and not be saved. Saving faith goes beyond what we call mental assent. It goes beyond merely agreeing with certain facts about Jesus. Saving faith involves what, what theologians call personal trust. It involves an entrusting of oneself to Him. It involves coming to Him and, and giving yourself to Him. You see, true faith is a powerful thing, a very powerful thing. Faith is powerful though, not because of faith itself. There's no power in our faith. But faith is powerful because it's inseparable from the God in whom it trusts. 1 John 5, 4 says that our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Now, how does faith overcome the world? Because biblical faith, our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ joins us to the God in whom we trust. The object of our faith is God himself and Christ himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the faith that comes to Christ and trusts him 
will be helped by him. And this foundational understanding of faith is important as we study the book of Matthew. Because Matthew does not present justification or the doctrine of justification by faith the same way that Paul does. Matthew kind of presents things differently. And maybe maybe you've already kind of seen that and sensed that a little bit in our study. It's not that Matthew has a different view of salvation or that Jesus has a different view of salvation. What's happening is that Jesus and Matthew show us what true faith really looks like. Throughout Matthew, Jesus calls us to have a full appreciation of who he is. And anything less than a full appreciation of who he is is not acceptable. Jesus called his disciples to a high standard in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not like he's asking us to save ourselves by works, but he's showing us what genuine faith results in. And nowhere is this more clear in the, in the, this gospel than, than in the calls to discipleship throughout Matthew. When Jesus calls someone to follow him, he's calling them to be a disciple. He's calling them to be a learner. He's calling them to come to follow, to, sorry, to come to him in true faith. And he always points those people to the cost. To be a disciple means commitment. It means to deny oneself. It means to take up the cross. It means doing the will of the Father and devoting oneself to God and living a life of righteousness as described in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is always forthright about the cost. He never sugarcoats the gospel as John MacArthur called it. And, and he always shows us both the cost and the benefit of following him. And that's what we see in our text for this morning. And so if you haven't done so already, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 18 to 22 this morning. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. I called this message the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Look at it there. Let's read our text here. It says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, He gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples came, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. So Jesus gave orders to go to the other side. And what is meant there is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And two disciples or two would-be disciples talk to Jesus about this call. And the first says that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. But Jesus informs him of the cost. The second wants to delay obedience for what seems like, at least on the surface reading, it seems like a legitimate reason. He wants to bury his father. Jesus calls him instead to follow him. And so one was too hasty. The other was too hesitant. These verses are about the cost of discipleship. 
And we're going to see these little little interludes on discipleship throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is very much about discipleship. Just a, a constant focus, a constant coming back to who Jesus is, discipleship. Who Jesus is, what it means to be a disciple of his. We kind of saw this already in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, And Matthew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me is kind of a a continual um, uh, call to discipleship throughout the Gospels. Follow me. Become a learner. Become a, a disciple of mine. Verse 20 continues, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Simon, Peter, and Andrew left their nets to follow Jesus. James and John left the boat and their father to follow Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount then declared the God-centered righteousness that Jesus' disciples are to live. We're to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. Matthew 10.38 says, Jesus says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in the context of Matthew 10, Jesus is sending his disciples to preach the good news. And their message was, take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ. Their message was lose your life for Jesus' sake. That's what take up your cross meant. You know, we kind of think about uh, it's just so kind of casually in our culture, but take up your cross meant, you, you know, you, you carried your cross to your execution. And so take up your cross and follow me means give up your life for my sake. Matthew, and, and I should have you turning here, Matthew 16, 24. Let's, let's go and, and look at that one. Just, we're just kind of seeing the, some of these calls to discipleship throughout Matthew. Scattered through the whole gospel. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, notice that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the call to discipleship is a call to die. It's a summons from the Lord Jesus to give up our lives for his sake. We're to follow him in the way of his death. He gave his life for us that we might be free to live our lives for him. And Matthew even ends the gospel with a call to make disciples, Matthew 28 and verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are to make disciples who follow Jesus, who obey his teaching and give up their lives for his sake. A disciple is a Christian 
And a Christian is a disciple. Discipleship isn't some higher standard for serious Christians. We are all to deny ourselves and follow Jesus Christ. And so again, we need to ask then, well, how does faith fit with all this? How does faith fit with this? If we are saved by faith, how can we be expected to give up everything, including even our own lives? And the answer, at least as I understand it from Scripture, is that true faith sees Jesus for who He is. True faith comes to Jesus and recognizes Him for the treasure that He is. True faith sees Jesus as God in human flesh, as the only way to be made right with God, and as King of kings and Lord of lords. Faith says, I am entirely unworthy, and He is entirely worthy. True faith says living for myself is vanity. Living for Christ is truly living. And any faith, any quote-unquote faith that doesn't make a a person want to live for Christ is really no faith at all. And so with that, let's look at our text for this morning. We have the overly hasty would-be disciple, and he seems to not have counted the cost. And then we have the hesitant disciple who, who wants to delay following the Lord. And I want to frame this message today a little bit more directly than I sometimes do. And I, I want us to consider not only the cost of discipleship, but also the value of knowing Christ. And so I came up with two questions to consider as we look at our text. And this is our outline for this morning. Two questions. These are two questions about Jesus' worth and the cost of discipleship. Two questions about Jesus' worth and the cost of discipleship. The first question is, do you love Jesus above the comforts of home? In verses 18 to 20. Do you love Jesus above the comforts of home? And then secondly, do you love Jesus above the expectations of family? And notice the questions are asking about our love for Jesus. I think love for Jesus, valuing Him, considering Him worthy, treasuring Him, and other similar ideas are, are just slightly different ways of saying really the same thing. Now, in the, in our text, neither of the disciples are actually asked about, about their love for Jesus. They're, they're, nor, nor are they told to have a high view of Him. But if you think about it, the only way that they'll be able to follow through with what Jesus is asking of them will be if they have a high view of Christ, that brings them to love him above even their own selves. And so that's why I want to frame the sermon that way, because it's love for Christ that's going to enable us to live the way that he calls us to. And, and, and that's what true faith is, is a, a love for Christ that values him and treasures him above the comforts of home, above the things of the world, above the expectations of family, and really about everything else in our lives, even our own selves. And so let's look at the first one, verses 18 to 20, and ask yourself, and and I really want you to do this, do you love Jesus above the comforts of home? Do you love Jesus above the comforts of home? Look again at verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And so Jesus is surrounded by the crowd. And it seems like he wants to be alone with his disciples, and so he gives orders to go to the other side. 
Now we'll see in verse 24 that he means the other side of the Sea of Galilee and that the the journey is going to be by boat. And on the other side is the area known as the the Gadarenes or also known as Decapolis. The area was made of 10 Gentile cities, kind of 10 Gentile city-states. They were opposite Capernaum on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's the area that, G, that, that, that's an area that Jewish people wouldn't necessarily want to go. They, they didn't, they didn't like to be in Gentile territory. They considered it almost unclean. They would shake the dust off when they came back, but Jesus gave the order to go. And from the rest of what we see in this text, we, we see that Jesus is saying more than, let's go for a boat ride to the other side. You see, this is a a call to discipleship. This order seems to be a call to discipleship. And at least two men come to talk to Jesus about following him. And so there's this call to discipleship. We're going to go across to the other side. I'm going to be alone with my disciples. And the first one is a scribe. Look at verse 19. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the scribes were experts in Israel's law. And they're not well regarded throughout Matthew. They're they're usually together with the Pharisees as Jesus' enemies. And although they were experts in the law, they weren't truly righteous. Remember Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the scribes and Pharisees were religious, but they weren't saved. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces woe on the scribes and the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites. But this particular scribe seems to be a follower of Jesus. And we can kind of see that from verse 21. Matthew 8.21 says, Another of his disciples said to him, and so it seems like the scribe was a disciple, And the disciple in verse 21 was another disciple. And so this scribe seems to be a disciple, but neither of these quote-unquote disciples were disciples in the full sense of the term. The scribe was part of the crowd that followed Jesus, and there were various levels of commitment amongst the crowd, and they were there for various reasons. And so this scribe is... Uh, somewhat of a disciple, somewhat of a, a follower, loosely connected to Jesus. And he approached Jesus and he calls him teacher. The scribes were seen as the teachers of the law. And so for him to call Jesus teacher seems promising. He acknowledges Jesus, uh, who would have, in, in, at least in human terms, appeared to be a country rabbi, a, a, an itinerant teacher. But this scribe recognizes Jesus as teacher. But throughout Matthew, whenever Jesus is called teacher, it's never by true believers. Lord is the more appropriate form of address. But he comes and he calls Jesus teacher and he says in verse 19, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, doesn't that sound great? I will follow you wherever you go. That that sounds great. I think a lot of pastors and evangelists would be pretty excited to have a high-profile religious person tell us that that they will follow Jesus wherever. I think if I was talking to one of you and you said, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he goes, I would be pretty through the roof. That is fantastic. That's great. But Jesus knows what's truly in the heart, and he seems to sense that the scribe hasn't fully thought it through. 
Look at what he says. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He tells the scribe that he, Jesus, doesn't have a place to lay his head. Foxes and birds have their places, but Jesus has nowhere. Now in Galilee, Jesus and his disciples had places to stay. But that would be unlikely in Decapolis in the Gentile territory. Jesus himself had no home. He traveled from place to place preaching the gospel. Now as we think about that, Israel has a milder climate. And you could sleep comfortably in most places with a good cloak. But still, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. No place to call his own. And so to follow him meant sleeping outdoors. It meant renouncing what most would consider a normal life. And the amazing thing about this is that Jesus created the foxes and the birds. He chose this life of hardship to become our Savior. And we are to follow him in that life of hardship and to, in order to be used by him to reach others with the gospel. And so Jesus, by implication then, is asking the scribe to consider what it means to follow Jesus wherever he goes. At that time, for that scribe, following Jesus meant giving up the comforts of home. It meant worse conditions than foxes or birds have. And Jesus endured that for us. Jesus is our example then in following, in living out Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matt, Jesus is our example in that. So what about us then? What do we think about this? What do we do with this? What are we to do? How do we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in light of what this text is saying? We don't literally follow Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. We don't need to sleep outdoors in Decapolis. But the same principle applies to us. Following Jesus for us must mean serving him above the comforts of home. He must be first. He must be greater in our minds than our own preferences and comforts. Now, we don't necessarily need to live on the street, but we must be willing to go wherever He calls or do whatever glorifies Him. For example, if we were called to deny Christ or go to jail, then we must go to jail. If we are called to disobey Christ or lose our homes... We must lose our homes. Discipleship requires a willingness to give up anything and everything for Jesus Christ. The faith that sees Christ for who He truly is is the faith that is willing to lose all for Him. And I want you to see that the connection here between this kind of endurance and faith by turning over to the book of Hebrews. So let's go and look at some passages in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse, we'll start in verse 24. The faith that sees Christ for who he truly is, is the faith that is willing to lose all for him. And this is like Moses who, according to verse 24, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's the faith that endures trials. That's the faith that we need. We need a faith that recognizes God as a rewarder of those who seek Him from verse 6. A faith that looks at eternity above our short time on the earth. We need a faith like those in Hebrews 11.33. It says there, "...who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That is the faith of true disciples. And such a faith loves Christ above earthly comfort. Brothers and sisters, do you love Christ above the comforts of home? Would you take mocking and flogging, imprisonment, death, affliction, mistreatment, or whatever else for His sake? Would you wander in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth? Or would you go without even dens and caves of the earth for Christ's sake, if it was necessary? That's the question that our text really gets us to ask ourselves as we look at it. And we don't see in this text what this disciple responded or how he did. And so it's kind of left open. We wonder. And that wondering is made to make us ask ourselves, do we love Christ above the comforts of home? Now the next question takes a bit of work in the ancient context to understand. And so let's go back now to Matthew chapter 8 and let's look at it a little bit more closely here. We're now going to look at verses 21 and 22. And the question this time that that we want to ask ourselves is, do you love Jesus above the expectations of family? Verses 21 and 22. Do you love Jesus above the expectations of family? Could have almost had this be, do you love Jesus above the the wealth of the world or something like that. But I think both of those, the expectations of family and the wealth of the world are involved here. Look at verse 21. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now he calls Jesus Lord here. And so that's a a good sign. That's what many saved people do in this gospel. But Lord, let me go. Let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, go to the other side. And this man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, Jesus' reply might seem harsh at first glance. Verse 22, and Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
And it seems especially harsh when we consider the importance in the Jewish mind of a a proper burial and the importance of respecting one's parents. And so to understand this, we need to first understand what is the disciple asking? What is this disciple asking? There's two views on this. The first view is pretty much what you would think. The man's father died and he wants to bury him first and then he'll follow Jesus. Perhaps he'll catch up with him in a few days on the other side. When someone died, the, the Jews would pretty much bury them the same day or with, at least within 24 hours. They didn't embalm and so they, they needed to act fairly quickly. And I always remember this from John chapter 11 and the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus, member was dead for four days according to John eleven seventeen, And then in verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And for some reason, I always remember this in the King James. Martha said in the King James, Lord, by this time he stinketh, and he hath, he hath been dead four days. And the point is that it, it really didn't take very long until the, the dead person would stinketh, and so they, they buried them very quickly within 24 hours. You, you remember in Acts chapter 5, Peter and Ananias, and, and Peter says to Ananias, why did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back the proceeds? And, and, uh, and remember he, Ananias, heard the words of Peter when he said, you have not lied to man, but to God. And Ananias heard those words and he fell down and he breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. And then Acts 5, 6 says, the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And so they went away immediately. The man died during the church service. Immediately they went out, buried him. They come back a little bit later. Three hours later, remember Ananias's wife Sapphira comes three hours later and the young men returned. It seems close to the same time. And verse 10, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And then it says, when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, after the burial, which would have been pretty quick, there was a, about three to ten days of, of mourning that would happen. And it might, maybe, maybe it took a little bit longer to, to kind of divide out the inheritance and kind of settle the family affairs. And if that was the case, our disciple here is asking for a few days or maybe a few weeks to settle his family affairs. Now, that's a possible view, but it's unlikely. Not super likely. If his dad had just died, think about it. Now, we haven't seen a resurrection from the dead, but if his dad had just died, why not ask Jesus to raise him from the dead? He will only have just died. Or or maybe he would have known even a few days before that he was sick and dying. And so the second view says, if the man's father just died... He wouldn't be hanging around the crowd talking with Jesus. He would be burying him already right now. In other words, the second view is that his father did not just die, nor is he dead. Instead, the phrase, bury my father, was a um, an idiom, a, a way of saying, to do my duty as a son, to carry on the family business until my father dies and I receive my inheritance. 
So bury my father was a, a way to say, it, do my duty as a son to carry on the family business until my father dies and until I receive my inheritance. In that case, the man is saying, I'll follow you in about five to 20 years or more. The man's father could be healthy and well, and, and, and he could live quite a bit beyond five years, 10 years, 20 years, maybe 30, 40 years. And there are documented cases where bury my father means just that. Now, it's a little bit difficult to decide, but I, I, I take the second view here. I don't think Jesus would have responded so strongly if, if all the man was wanting to do was take a few weeks to literally bury his father. Now, those who think that, that that is, who, those who take the first view, they, they don't, they don't actually take Jesus' response very literally. They, they call it hyperbole, very much like Matthew 5.29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, when we look at those verses, we realize that Jesus doesn't want us to cut off our hands or pluck out our eyes, but what he wants is he wants us to take sin that seriously. And in the same way, those who kind of take the first view that the man's father is already dead, they would say, well, this is a, a, an exaggerated statement and, and Jesus doesn't necessarily mean don't go to the funeral. What he does mean, they would say, is... is and that's kind of a question. What would it mean if this was a hyperbole? Something like, you know, you can go to your dad's funeral, but don't get distracted from following me. And I just, I don't think that works well. I think it's better to take the second view. The man's father is likely not dead yet, and he isn't even dying either. Of course, again, if he was dying, he would bring Jesus to him for healing, right? And Jesus had already healed everyone in Capernaum and Galilee. And so the man's, the man's father's likely not dead. He's not dying. Bury my father means serve with him until he dies. And that was really expected of the oldest son. It was, it was his family duty. Jesus is saying then not don't go to your father's funeral. That's, that's not what he's saying. He was saying, let the spiritually dead concern themselves with the family business. Or let the spiritually dead worry about family expectations. Or let the spiritually dead busy themselves with the affairs of this world, but you follow me. Again, verse 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now we need to even slow down a bit more and think about this just a, a, a little bit more in the historical context. This, this would-be disciple, he apparently lives in or around Capernaum. And he lives at the same time that Jesus Christ ministered there. Now, Jesus had healed all the sick in that area on more than one occasion. And he's been teaching with authority, preaching the good news. He is God the Son living on earth with a fully human nature. And his miracles have shown time and time again that he is God. Now, if this man is one of his disciples, even if only for a few weeks prior, he will have seen something of who Jesus 
was. See where, where we're going here with this? You know, even if your dad did die, and you were there at that time, God is walking the earth, teaching, preaching, and healing. You know, I think maybe you forget about your normal life. I think you forget about your family and you follow God. You know, if Jesus came back now, like right now, and there was a a funeral, I'd go with Jesus, no matter whose funeral it was. If Jesus came back now and there was a funeral, I would go with him. And I think every Christian would do the same. If Jesus came and, and you'd miss him, if you didn't go with him right away, wouldn't you go no matter what else was in your plans? If Jesus Christ came here now and said, come with me, or you're going to miss it? And so I think every true Christian would do the same. As hard as it might be, if we realize that it's time for worldly, normal plans to change because Christ is here. And so here's where we apply this to ourselves. We don't take this, let the dead bury their own dead, and apply it to funerals. Funerals are, are okay, and I think funerals are even great opportunities to reach the living with the truth of the gospel. I think this applies best to family expectations and worldly business. The man most likely wanted to put off following Jesus until after he got his inheritance. He wanted to make it in the world and then go and serve the Lord. Now that's a bad strategy because you don't know how long you have. And that's a bad strategy because we're to serve the Lord now. Obedience later It's just disobedience now. And so, brothers and sisters, beware of letting worldly interests keep you from serving the Lord and being a disciple of His. We should work, right? We should have jobs. We need to provide for our families, but beware of losing focus on the Lord and on His kingdom and His righteousness. That's what we're to seek first, not our kingdom and our bank account. Now, another application of this beyond kind of worldly affairs in life is, is tied to the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking. To bury one's father was really the expected, customary, mandatory family expectation. That is what you did as an older son. You cared for the family business. You led the way. You served beside your father until he died. Family expectations sometimes need to be put aside to follow Jesus. And Jesus is going to have lots to say about that in this gospel. Matthew 10, 37, we read verse 38 uh, earlier today, but Matthew 10, 37 says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We must love Jesus above our families. Serving Him comes first. And often we can serve Jesus by serving our families. And I think that's maybe even most often the case. But sometimes, and especially with an unbelieving family, we need to go against their expectations to honor the Lord. It's better to disappoint family than to dishonor or disobey the Lord. And so do you love Jesus above the expectations of family. That's what true discipleship requires. 
Our Savior is worthy of everything. He's worthy of all of our love. And so we're to follow Him no matter what. And, and sometimes that might mean a, a division amongst the family as we seek to honor the Lord first in our lives. But our Savior is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our family. There's really nothing that we could give up that's more precious or more valuable than Him. We're going to sing now then, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And just think about the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time together in Your Word. We thank You that that You have shown us how great You are above everything, above our own selves, above our families, above our... Really above everything, above, above our own comforts, you are number one and you have shown us that. Father, help us to follow you. We pray that our love for you would grow and that we would even joyfully forsake everything that there is in this world to live our lives for Jesus' sake, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, treasure above all treasures, Lord above all lords. We pray in His name. Amen.